Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, Father, this morning we open your word and I pray, Lord, that you would give us great awe of you, that we would glorify you as we see you in your words, just as these people did when they saw Jesus heal this man's sin. Help us to glorify you in everything. In your name, amen. Please be seated. Justin the martyr, let me tell you his story. Justin was born in 8103 in Samaria. He grew up as a Greek-trained philosopher, well-versed in Plato. He was a very smart man and renowned for his philosophy, but was always restless to find what he was missing. Justin admires Christians because of the bravery they have under extreme suffering, but believes their faith is in vain until one day he meets an older philosopher who is a Christian. In the course of their conversation, Justin converts to Christianity and decides that not only is this the truth that he was missing, but it is far superior to the philosophies he had heard and debated in the past. He starts lecturing and debating in Christian philosophy and started a public school in Rome to further teach others. Most importantly, he addresses a written appeal on behalf of Christians in defense of Christianity to the most powerful man in the world at that time, Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor. This is the first apology he wrote. He's probably our first apologetic. In it, he shows that Christians exceed the normal expectation of citizenship, but will not compromise their faith. Though they pay taxes willingly and pray for the emperor, they will not pray to the emperor, nor allow anyone or anything to usurp Christ's place. Tyranny and threats are powerless against Christian believers, he declares, because of the hope that they have. His famous line is, you can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. His bold claim rests on his assurance that the death of the body is not the end of human existence. Resurrection is coming. Injustice boldly warns the emperor that he, like all other humans, will face the judgment of mankind someday. After publishing his second apology around the age of 60, he and six companions were arrested, and when they would not renounce their faith or sacrifice to idols, they were scourged multiple times and finally beheaded. Justin, the martyr, had it right. There's one authority we need to be scared of, the authority over our souls. And today we're gonna to learn about authority and Christ's authority that he can forgive our sins. And that's the only thing we should fear. If you haven't gone there already, as we said, we're in Matthew nine. Um, we'll be starting in verse one. This is a story that's in all three Gospels. Actually, all three of our stories today are going to come in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. They're, they're both in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. 
In fact, the healing of the paralytic is also in John, which we don't always find, uh, but it's actually in all four. But most of these are in all three. And what's interesting about that is that in each three, it's a very different story. It doesn't look anything the same. Matthew is very to the point. Hey, here's what's important. Here's what I'm going to pull out. Mark, while he's typically the shorter one, isn't so short. And then Luke is very long in all of these. And it's interesting to me that we have a different perspective from each of the authors of the gospel. While the story is completely true and they don't do anything to detract from each other, we get a great perspective of what they have and what they care about. It's great. When you read God's word, especially something like this, I love it. I love that we don't have a single voice, a monotonous voice that we can't enjoy, but I can enjoy three different voices that give me much color and picture to a situation. Let's read this again. And getting in the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people were brought to him in pole. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying in a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said within themselves, The man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid or awestruck, and they glorified God, who had given authority to such men. So Jesus is returning uh, from across the sea. Uh, we learned about that last week with Nate. They have some ups and downs during that journey. Uh, it ends with some demon-possessed men uh, being freed of their demon possession and not so good for the pigs. Um, and now we're coming to learn about more authority in Christ. So he comes back over to his own city. Most likely this is Capernaum. Most likely at this point he is working out of Peter's home. All right, so he's coming back. He's going to Peter's house, and he, the crowds are following him. Now, there's a lot of people following him. It's not just one or two it's a huge crowd. Now, I got a little perspective on this. About 10 or 11 years ago, I, I traveled to California quite a bit for my work. And about 10 or 11 years ago, I pull up to my hotel in San Jose, California, and I, I can't get in the driveway. There's all these people standing there. And I'm going, what is going on? How do I get into this hotel? What is going on? So I drive around the back. I can't get in the back. There, there's a bunch of young girls jumping up and down. I'm going, what is going on? This is so weird. How do I get into my hotel? Eventually, I called the hotel and they said, well, you got to go through the garage this way. It's a back way. You can't get in the front door. Well, what's going on? Who's here? I don't know. Some group called One Direction or something is here and they're playing and these girls want to see them and you can't get in. Now, I'm not a huge fan of One Direction, even though I do like boy bands. <laughs> but I got this view of what it's like to have a huge crowd following. These people are there because they want to see these people, not because they're telling them anything good in this situation or anything else. There's somebody famous. We got to go see him. I remember years ago, my wife, when the All-Star game was in town in Denver, said, you know what? We got to go downtown to see these All-Stars. I want to see what these guys look like. And there was a big crowd following these All-Stars. Crowds follow people that are famous. And that's exactly what we see here. 
We're not said these are disciples of Christ. We're not saying these are anything else. These are the crowds that hear somebody cool is in town. We got to go see him. So they come to Peter's house and they pack it out. Now, let's take a step here for a second. We don't see in Matthew that they pack it out or there's a lot of people here. We actually learn this from Luke. Uh, I'm sorry, from Matthew here. Matthew basically says, hey, there's a gathering, paralytic comes, your sins are forgiven, we're done. In Luke and Mark, we learn that the house is packed out and these friends do something courageous in order to get their friend in there, right? So the house is packed out, two-story house, most likely. All of these houses tend to be two-story. The second story of the house is a huge open room where everybody can come in and sit and talk to each other. It's made for gatherings. That's probably where Jesus is. All of the houses would have two stairways up the side of the house. We have these two, four friends that go up these two flights of steps with their paralyzed friend to get him in. Now, we again, we don't see this in Matthew, and we'll come to that in a second, but that's what we learn from Luke. These four friends take their friend all the way up to the top floor. They make a hole in the, in the ceiling or in the floor, and they drop their friend down to Jesus. Now, why does Matthew skip this? I think it's real simple. I think Matthew wants to get to the point. There's a single point here. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus can forgive your sins. That's all Matthew cares about. The rest of the stuff is fluff to him. Sure, it's a good story. I don't care. In the grand scheme of things, Jesus forgives my sins. Who cares about a roof? Who cares about lowering down? Now, some of us that love entertainment want to hear the story, right? I want to hear that they dropped him down. And in the middle of all of this, Jesus forgives the man's sins. But Matthew wants to get to the point. Now, let's take a second here and let's talk about this paralytic. He is on a stretcher. So he's completely laid out. Most likely, this man was not just paralyzed from the waist down, but probably from the neck down. He probably could not move any of his extremities. Could he even talk? We don't even know. We also don't know how long he's been paralyzed. Was this from birth? Was this something that happened to him along the way? We have no idea. Now, in this culture, in a sin-based, sin-shame culture, this would not look good for this man. The fact that he had friends is beyond. These people don't have friends. They're hurt because they're sinful. That's what this culture would say. Now, where do we learn that? We learn that in a couple areas, but one, I don't know if you remember this story with the disciples and John, where they come out and they see a man that's blind from birth and the disciple says, well, what did this guy do, Jesus, before you heal him? Let's find out what this guy did, right? We may not want to heal him because he may deserve what he got. That's the culture we're in and that's this paralytic. He's having to be brought by four friends to this. Probably he's very shamed. Nobody will talk to him. Nobody wants to be around him because this is a sign of his sin. Now, is that true or not? It doesn't matter because in this culture, this man is completely ostracized and nobody wants to be around him. So when he's dropped down to Jesus and he says, take heart, do not worry, my son, your sins are forgiven. This is the most powerful and uplifting thing Jesus could possibly say to him. If Jesus would have purely said, son, here's your legs back, go. I'm sure this man still would be like, 
Well, what do I tell people? What do I tell them why I was healed? When Jesus forgives this man's sin, now all of a sudden he's clean. I don't care if my legs or my throat or anything else get fixed. I don't care if I can talk again. I am going to be absolved of my sin. I no longer live under it. Jesus knows that. He reads his heart. And so he says, son, your sins are forgiven because that's exactly what he needs. Now, when he says this, we have our first time with our Jewish leaders in Matthew that they start going after Jesus. And you're going to see over and over and over again, they're going to start going after Jesus. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Who do you think you are? Up until this point, they believe he's a good teacher. They haven't really gone into his ministry. They haven't really affected it much. But from here on out, their goal is to destroy his ministry. And it starts right here with these scribes. They look at each other and they say, hey, did that guy just say your sins are forgiven? Now, our word says that they said to themselves. I think a better translation is they said within themselves. Nothing verbal happened in this. Okay, this is like when you're sitting there with your wife or a friend and you hear say, something say crazy and you go, yeah, that was crazy. Can you believe that guy said that? I'm not saying anything, but you know exactly what I mean. That's what they did because who can forgive sins? Only God. They were not stupid. They knew God's word. They knew the Old Testament and they knew that Christ is blaspheming. This man blasphemes. What is he doing? How can he say this? Right? That's what they're saying to each other. And they're right. They're not wrong in the situation. Only God can forgive sins, period. And this man is forgiving sins. So one of two things happens here. Either he's truly God, come to this earth, or we need to kill him. Now, obviously, the scribes are in the second category here. We're going to kill him. But I want you guys to know that they're absolutely right in the way they assess the situation. We need to know who this man is. What is he thinking? And Jesus reads their hearts. Now, if the Pharisees or the scribes in this situation really understand the Old Testament, they would understand that him reading their minds and hearts actually proves he's God almost as much as forgiving sins. Only God can read hearts. First Samuel 16, the Lord looks on the heart. First Kings 8, for you know the heart of all men. First Chronicles 28, the Lord searches all hearts and understands the imagination of the thoughts. Only God can read minds and hearts. And when Jesus responds to them, without them saying anything, he proves again he's God. Forgiving sins, reading hearts. And he says to them, why do you think evil in your hearts? I know you guys aren't giving me the benefit of the doubt here that I'm God. Even though I've forgiven sins and I've completely read your mind, I know you want to kill me. What's going on? What are you thinking? He knew that their motives were not pure at all. Their motives were, oh my goodness, this guy's going to take away some of my business. At this point, religion had become a business. We saw it in the temple. We see it with the scribes, we see it with the Pharisees. They have to maintain a certain amount of authority in order to keep religion going. We've seen this throughout many churches in history that you have to have authority to keep the religion there. You want to know why? Because that religion is no longer true. 
it's been changed and morphed to something that isn't what was meant. And that's exactly what's going on. They don't have the pure motives. They want to maintain their bully status, and they do not want anybody to take it away. So then he says, then what's easier? What's easier? Your sins are forgiven and rise up and walk. It's funny, reading this cracked me up. All of the commentators laughing about this going, duh. Forgiving sins, isn't that way harder? Isn't that way harder? Well, you would think. But since I can't see it, nobody believes it. So maybe it's really easy to say your sins are forgiven. And it doesn't matter. Maybe it's really easy just to say, hey, don't worry about it. You'll never go to hell. Maybe that is easier to say. But is it? He says, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven and do it, or is it easier to say rise up and walk? Well, to prove to you that I have power with both, I'm going to do the easier one. I'll do the easier one, I'll prove it, and then you have to believe the other one. And so he says to the man, rise up, pick up your bed, and walk. And of course, of course, the man rises up and walks. I mean, how could they not understand at this point? I've forgiven sins. I've read your hearts. Wouldn't you think I now have physical power? Have they not read chapter 8 and all the authority that Christ has? Seriously. Sure enough, he heals him. He stands up, and they're in awe. It says they're afraid. Afraid is not a good term here. Awe or awestruck is the right word you want to use. Now, if you listen to the briefing, Al Mohler has very uh, high lofty status of the word awesome. I probably use it in a lot of ways that he would not appreciate. But this word awesome is a huge word. It's something we need to grasp. Awesome is something that is so big that you can't deny that it's there. Take an atomic bomb, for instance. If an atomic bomb went off, you couldn't just walk along and say, oh, not a big deal, whatever. It's not a big deal. No, you would have to stop and go, wow. First time you go to the ocean, first time I went to the ocean, you see this huge body of water, you see all these waves, and you go, wow. What is that? Who created that? We have awe in things that are so much greater than us that we have to stop and be afraid. Not afraid because we're scared, afraid because there's absolute great power in front of us. So we are in awe. The crowds, the ones that are there to see one direction, they are in awe because they just saw God. Think about that for a second. These are not Christians. These are not disciples. These are not people that are there for Christ or anything else. They're there for the selfie and the autograph. But they now see God, and they're in awe. They stop. Praise God. I glorify you, God. I just saw your power given to a man. Now, Matthew doesn't go into it, neither does, does Mark or Luke, but when they say that, I wish they would say the Messiah on top of that. Because the only man that gets this authority is the Messiah. So they are basically saying, God, thank you for sending us this Messiah. They're acknowledging what they have in front of them. All right, so again, in awe, they have to make a decision. 
Now, if they saw him and they were in awe, but didn't believe him, there's only one right response they have. They should be stoning him. They should be killing him. We shouldn't go on any farther. It should be done. But they truly understand as the crowds that this is God's son, the Messiah. We'll get into this more in a minute, but I want you guys to think about as we go through this authority. What is truly authority? And I'll stop there and let's move on and we'll come back to this. Verse nine, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he followed him. And Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciple. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus calls and eats with sinners. So as they leave this house, we're not sure when this is. Is this a day later? Is this 10 days later? We're not sure. But Jesus is living and he's walking down the road. As he's walking down the road, there would be these offices, tax offices, where they'd be collecting tolls, basically, collecting goods. If you're using the Roman highway, you need to pay for it. It's not free. So they're walking down and they see a man named Matthew. Now, Matthew is only used in Matthew. It's Levi and everywhere else. Now, why is it Levi? Was his name truly Matthew? Was his name truly Levi? It doesn't really matter. It's the same man. We know that for sure. And let's just leave it at that. He sees this man, Matthew, sitting at the tax office. Now, if we don't know tax collectors, nobody likes them. Let's be honest. Today, if I worked for the IRS, I probably wouldn't tell you either. It's still kind of one of those, but this is even worse. These are actual people who have turned on their own people and are taking advantage of them. They're not good guys. Matthew's sitting in the tax office and he's collecting tax as people go by. Now let's real quickly look at the tax, taxes in Rome and what it looks like. It's a franchise business. If you guys know what a franchise is, I buy in and now all of a sudden I get something out of it. If I buy a McDonald's, I get to sell McDonald's wares, but McDonald's still does all of my marketing. I get to use their name. I get to use their products, but I own that specific McDonald's. Same thing here. A tax collector would buy a route or they would buy a region and they would be able to collect taxes there. Now they still did it under Rome's authority. So I think of it kind of this way. These are the government sponsored thugs or godfathers of the day. Right? They can do whatever they want. And if people don't pay their taxes, they go, hey, Centurion, come here, kill this guy. He didn't give me my money. Completely sponsored by the government. And as long as they got their cut, guess what? They didn't care. Do whatever you want to your people. I don't care. Now, Matthew actually would have been in one of the most profitable areas as well. He would have been right by the water where goods could come in from what was considered overseas since it was a different government state. So he could collect a lot of tax. So this is not a menial small job. This is a huge job. Think of it that he has New York and he's collecting taxes there. Huge tax area, lots of money coming in. And he probably was a pretty bad guy around those things. Jesus comes up, says, hey, follow me. 
Now, what does that mean for him? That means that he's got nothing left. When he became a tax collector, he's considered a Gentile. He's considered out of everything else. Alfred Edersheim says this, if you were a tax collector in this day, you could not attend the synagogue. You were barred from the place. You couldn't even have religious interactivity with people. You were listed in a list with the unclean beasts out of the Old Testament. You were like a pig. They were forbidden to be witness in court of law because they could not ever be believed. They were known as liars. They wouldn't even allow their testimony. They were classified below robbers and murderers. So Matthew as a tax collector is below the scum of the earth. The scum of the earth looks at him, looks down on him. He's no one. And if he leaves this, he would leave the only thing he has good going for him. That's money. Why would they do that? Because they would sell their soul, literally sell their soul for money. I would sell my family. I would sell my country just for some money. So if he gets up and he follows Christ, he's got nothing left. The only thing left is his money and it's gone. But what does he do? I love Matthew's word here. He got up and followed him. Very simple, very to the point. No, oh, I, I sat for an hour and I thought about it. I had a coffee together. I had him pitch me the idea before I moved on. No, it's I got up and followed him. Matthew obviously had heard about what had happened before. This is truly God. I am in awe. He's calling me. Well, of course I'm going. Why wouldn't I? And then he goes and does something that I love even more. Brand new convert following Christ for the first time. And what does he do? He throws a party. He throws a party. He says, friends, sinners, people that are rejected by society, let's have a big party and let's eat and let's feast. I want you to meet this guy named Jesus. He's the best. He just called me. I'm following him. Let's go. So they have a banquet. He's walked away from his entire life, but he has a banquet and says, I got to tell you. Now, this is what Spurgeon says about Matthew at this point. The new convert most naturally called his old friends that they might have the advantage of the Lord's teaching. They would come to a supper more readily than to a sermon. And so he gave them a feast and thus attracted them to the place where Jesus was. Now, who are the people he invited over? Well, they were his friends. What were his friends? Well, they probably fell into one of these categories. Prostitutes, murderers, robbers, thieves, or the completely godless. These are the only people Matthew could have social interaction with in his day. That's who he invited over. So when people look in, it's not so hard to see why the Pharisees asked this question. I kind of think of it this way. If you go and you're in a prison ministry and everybody comes out of prison and you invite them all over to your house, your neighbors are going to look at you and go, who are you having over again? How long are they going to be staying? Do I need to lock my car before they come over? Do I need to lock my doors? That's what's happening here. Jesus is going to the people that nobody wants to be around. The feared people, the bad people. And we see the Pharisees come up and say, hey, what is going on? Now, there's a couple things we need to understand about the Pharisees here. Uh, that's important. One, they were above anybody else. If somebody was begging to them, they would probably kick them in their face before they would give them any money because you don't do that. They had no love. They had stature and they loved their stature. 
They loved God's word. I'm not going to bully around it. They loved God's word. But they loved God's word in the fact that they got something out of it. I learned something from it. I can love it intellectually. But they didn't know God's word. And they enforced that on everyone else. I'm the best. I love God. You should look like me. And that's exactly what we're going to see them here. So they come up. And instead of going to Jesus, they go to the disciples. They go around the back door. They don't want to be confronted by the authority teacher guy. They want to go to the guys who are wimpy. They know this. Now, when I was a kid, it's not that long ago, or some of you would say it's really long ago. When I had a problem with somebody, it was really simple. We would talk about it. We might yell at each other. We might throw down, depending on who it is. And I would always win that. Don't worry. But we would have it out, man to man or man to woman, because that's what you did. As I've gotten older and I see our kids... I understand something different, this thing called social media. Did you know on social media I can go out and pick a fight with somebody anonymously? I don't need to say anything. I don't need to show my face. I don't need to do anything. It magically goes at them, and I have nothing on me. I don't need to worry about it. And that's kind of what the Pharisees are doing here. They're going around the back door hoping to sow discord among the disciples in an anonymous way so that they can attack Jesus. So they go around him and they say, hey, what is your teacher doing? What is he thinking? Why would he ever eat with these people? And honestly, part of me understands what they're saying. I hate it, but it's true. When I see somebody down on their luck, when I see somebody coming into my neighborhood that may not belong there, when I see these things, I hate to tell you, but sometimes my gut reaction is, ooh, do I want that person here? Do I need to think about this? And I can sympathize with what the Pharisees are doing here. But it's not right. It's not right at all. You should never have those feelings. Pharisees are saying, hey, Jesus, you're a teacher. We know you're a teacher. We know you have authority. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount. You talk with all this authority. We know you're a good man, but don't you know you can't do this? This is political suicide. Why would you eat or be seen with these people? Why would you even think it's okay to talk to them? And they take this question to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? I'm going to skip through some of it to where he says this. Only sick people need a doctor. If you're perfectly fine, you don't need to go to the doctor. Now, I'm sure Bentley doesn't want us to know this because physicians like us to come and get checkups all the time. Um, but when you're sick is when you really go to the doctor. I'll be honest. In my 30s and probably now into my 40s, I don't like the doctor. I don't like going to the doctor. If I'm sick, I even won't go to the doctor most times until it's really bad and I go, all right, I guess I'll go this one time. I don't like going to the doctor and I don't like doing that. But when I'm truly sick, I know that I need the doctor. And the doctor knows that I need to go see him. Same thing here. These people are truly sick. They understand their sickness. They're not the Pharisees who are actually sick ignoring it. These are people that go, I am purely broken and I know it and I'll tell the world because I need help. That's who Jesus is there for. Jesus is not for the unbroken. He's there for the broken that understand they're broken. The people who can't get themselves out. It says the sick, well, they need a doctor. If you're self-righteous, if you think you're the best, you don't need me. Done. Wash my hands clean. And then he gives them homework. He says, go out and find out what this means. I desire mercy versus sacrifice. This is from Hosea. And basically it means this. Sacrifice is what you do in religion. It is the 
form that you have to follow in order to follow the Old Testament, the Pharisees said. The Pharisees had a lot of rules that they gleaned, and I'm going to use that gleaned, from the Old Testament that you had to follow and to truly follow the Old Testament and the law. These were add-ons, things that they added on. If you didn't do these things, you actually weren't saved. So if you sacrificed your time, sacrificed your things, you could be saved. That's exactly what they thought. And Jesus goes back to Hosea where he specifically says, if you're that way, you're condemned. But if you have mercy, you can live. And Jesus is showing them the mercy by eating with these sinners. I want you all to know that these are the people of the kingdom. The broken, the people that know they're broken, the people that need a physician, those are the people of the kingdom. Not the Pharisees that think they have their own kingdom, but the broken Let's quickly go through these last couple of verses. Then disciples came, disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn or fast? As long as the bridegroom is with them, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into an old wineskin. If it is, the skins burst apart, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. Now, probably what's happening here is after this banquet is over, whether it's the next day or a couple days, John's disciples heard about what's going on. Now, to give you a picture, John's disciples are probably more similar in some ways to the Pharisees than they are to Jesus' disciples. And I don't mean that in the negative way that it comes across, so bear with me for a second. They probably had the same type of prescribed religion that the Pharisees did. They followed fasts, 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 that's a hard word, fasts, fasts. They followed fasts. They would go to the temple and worship in a certain manner. They would look very similar to Jewish tradition. All right, so when they come and they see, hey, Jesus eating this huge feast, they're going, Jesus, you're a glutton, buddy. Why are you eating all this food? What are you doing? I thought we were supposed to be fasting and, and more religious than everybody else. So that's the context that we have. They're coming, they're asking Jesus, what's going on? Now remember, at this point, John's in jail. He's not with them. So he can't give this, this wisdom. So they're going to Jesus for this. So they come to him and they say, hey, fasting, and we've gone over fasting. We went over it before. Fasting is a way that I can show that I'm uber-religious and hopefully God gives me something because I give up something, right? That's fasting to these people. We're fasting, you're not. Why? And Jesus makes it very simple. He says, you know what? The bridegroom is here. Now, this is very true. This is the bridegroom of the church. He's actually coming and first winning over his bride while he's on this earth. Right? We are the bride of Christ, and he's winning over his bride. So he's truly the bridegroom, and he's coming to earth, and he is winning over his people. And he says, while the bridegroom is amongst his people, you can't stop. Now, I was thinking about this going, you know, if you're sitting at a wedding, say we're all at a wedding, we sit down to this wonderful meal. I can see the prime rib coming out. I can smell the prime rib coming out. It's going to be great. What would it be like if they pass out all those plates and the best man gets up for his toast and says, all right, everybody, you can't eat the feed. We're starting to fast right now. 
Can't eat the food. We're starting to fast right now. Don't touch it. Everybody in the place would be like, what? Are you joking? <laughs> Seriously? What's going on here? It just makes zero sense. Why would you do that? And Jesus is saying that same thing. It makes no sense. While I'm here, my disciples aren't going to fast. They are going to enjoy me, and that's okay. But I will be gone at one point, and maybe they will fast. They'll fast for different reasons, though. And now we come to the part with old cloth with new cloth, old wine, new wineskin. There's a difference between what you're doing and what we're doing. Now let's take one minute and talk about why this matters. So cloth. If you take a new piece of cloth that hasn't been shrunk and you put it on a shrunk garment, I understand I've never actually done this. I understand that when it shrinks, it'll tear the stitching and it'll ruin the garment basically. All right, wine. If you have new wine, it's giving off all kinds of chemicals and things like that while it's actually fermenting. So if you put it in a cracked wineskin, it can't expand and contract as it goes through that process. Hence, it'll blow up. It just doesn't make any sense. So we need a new wineskin for new wine. We need a pre-shrunk piece of cloth for the cloth so that it works all right. Now, what is Jesus saying and what does he mean by this? He means a couple different things. One, he means this. The way you do religion today is not the way we're going to do religion tomorrow. The way you prescribe religion doesn't work in the future. Instead of following rules and getting to heaven by doing your own thing, we are now under a blood covenant that Christ died for our sins and that's all that's needed. It's different. If you believe in dispensations, you would say this is a completely different dispensation. Things are changing. Now, what does that mean for the law and what they were following? It means one simple thing. It is going to be fulfilled. It's not gone. It still matters. But it's been completely fulfilled, so it's no longer the focus. Jesus and his blood and him dying on the cross the new covenant is now our focus. It's not going to look the same, guys. It looks different. And he's trying to tell John's disciples this and get across this idea that the law is not abolished, nothing is changing, but I'm fulfilling it. It's going to look different. And it's hard for them to grasp. When they hear this, I'd like to think that John's disciples went out and truly understand the repentance that John was baptizing men into. If you remember, John came onto the scene saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and he baptized a lot of people. And we find, especially in this passage, that they don't, I don't think his believers truly understand what that meant. If you guys remember, there's this guy named Apollos that we'll hear about later on in the New Testament, and he is teaching a lot of people. He's teaching in a very authoritative way, but he's teaching the baptism of John. And we find that the baptism of John doesn't complete the picture. It's not the entire gospel. You have to understand the end in order to preach it properly. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. He's saying, disciples of John, you kind of get this repentance part, but you're missing the other part. This is fulfilled now. It's completely fulfilled and done. And because of my blood, because of me, you can now be saved. We've about five minutes left. 
Let me go into a couple applications here. The first one is on authority. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about physical authority. If you didn't listen last week, Nate did a wonderful job uh, talking about God's authority and his absolute love for us in that authority and what he wants to do for us. I'm gonna talk of it in a slightly different way. And what I mean by that is I'm gonna talk about the authority that we should be in awe of. Luke 12, verse four says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The people in our passage were faced with somebody who could send them to hell. These were not Christians. These were not people that knew Jesus or what he really knew about. They just knew he was a famous man. They were faced with God forgiving sins. And what did they do? They were in awe and they glorified him. When you come face to face with the only one that could send you to hell or forgive your sins, are you in awe of him? If you're not in awe of him, if you don't know him, I want to tell you a decision has to be made. There is no middle ground here. Either you are for him or against him and there is nothing in the middle. If you are for him, you have life. If you are against him, I'm sorry, you're going to hell. That's all there is to it, period. You have to make a decision and you have to be on one or the other. If you don't make a decision, you're denying him as well. So for those here this morning that don't know Jesus, that don't see him as God's son, the one who can forgive our sins because he died on the cross, I truly beg of you, look to him. Look to him and see him. He is there. He's waiting for you. He will accept you into his arms. If you have accepted him, I want you to understand this decision you have made. You are now following someone who has completely protected you from anything you have to worry about. So what do we do? What's our response? It's easy. We go and tell others. The Great Commission, we'll get to it at the end of Matthew. All authority in heaven has been given unto me. Well, why does he start the Great Commission with that? Well, it's really easy. He's in charge. You have nothing to worry about. Just like Justin the Martyr said, you can kill us. That doesn't mean anything. It's not going to harm me. I still have everything I need. I still have God. I know where I'm going. All authority has been given, so go tell others. We, uh, last week for the youth, had Shadrach come in and share his testimony, and it was lovely. And one of his points he gave us was, no Jesus, no life. It's that simple. That's what we need to tell people. No Jesus, no life. I really like that point, and I want to encourage us here. That's what we go and tell. You have no Jesus, you have no life. Go tell that. Do not keep that to yourselves. Now, the last one I want to leave you on here is a thought that I have in a little bit of my past. For a long time at my work, it was very hard for me to tell others about the gospel. It's interesting. You go out, and I grew up in a good church. We would go do the street evangelism thing. That's a cakewalk, by the way. 
You don't know the person. You don't invest in the person. I don't have to feel shamed or anything else. It's really easy to do that part. But when I get to work out of college and I see these people I have to be with day in and day out for years on end, I get really scared. I was very scared. I'm like, I'm not going to tell them I'm a Christian. Look at these people. They hate Christians. I mean, they hate each other. If I'm a Christian, it's going to be really bad. What am I going to do here? And I'll be honest, it took me years to understand that I don't have to fear them, that I can tell them. And when I finally did, two things happened. One, tremendous weight lifted off my shoulders. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for doing this for me and working through me. I'm glad I got through it. But bigger one here is that God worked through it. Now I have a very good relationship with all of my coworkers that we can talk about these things. They stopped cussing around me nonstop, which is a godsend. They stopped using the Lord's name in vain all the time, which is wonderful. And now when I bring up Jesus, they don't go. They say, well, tell me about it. What do you think about this? I know you have different beliefs than me. What does your belief say? And it's a wonderful thing. It's just so cool to see the way God worked in the situation when I had fear. Fear that I should not have had because I know he is in charge. This goes to the point where I had a friend a couple years ago come to the Lord. Praise God. And he actually died last year uh, from a, actually something similar to what Dan Faulkner had. Uh, he died from his, his vein bursting in his neck. And at his funeral, it was very touching to me this, that even though I was scared, when God helped me overcome those fears, he took care of everything. He saved this man who needed to be saved. He loved this man who needed to be saved. And he took him home at the right time. Now, I tell you guys this not because of anything I've done, but through the Lord working through me. We have the authority. We have the power. We have everything we need to go and tell. Don't hold back. God will work through you. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, we just come before you and thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that we can read uh, your word, that we can see your son in your word, and that we can just be in awe of you. We thank you for your son who came, not because he had to come, not because he was the one who, who thought that he would just take care of everything, but because he listened to you. He wanted to please you. He loved you. So he came to this earth and died on the cross. He loves us also, Lord. He forgives our sins. He looks into our hearts and he sees us for who we truly are. Lord, we come before you as broken people that need a savior. Help us to understand that. Help us to love you for loving us. In your name I pray, amen.